This is the Life in the Front Office podcast. I want to first thank all of our listeners to making this a success and helping us continue to grow. We bring on sports executives and professionals from around the industry, all different aspects of the industry, to provide insights and advice for those who are trying to enter the sports industry or those who are already in the industry just looking to learn something new and continue to get better. If you like our episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and visit our website at lifeinthefrontoffice.com for more episodes. Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, and today I'm really excited. I've got Frank Supavitz on along with my co-host, Pat Gallagher, and we are here to talk about events. We're talking about Frank's career. He's the founder of Fast Traffic Events and Entertainment. Uh, you're probably wondering what that is. We will find out. And we'll, we'll dive into, um, you know, what really sports management is. And I'm going to pass off the baton to Pat to introduce uh, Frank, and we'll go from there. So Frank and I first, we met when uh, a number of years ago when I was working for the Bay Area uh, Super Bowl host committee. We were bidding on one of the Super Bowls. And at that time, Frank was in charge of, which he was for many years, in charge of the Super Bowl and other big events for the NFL. And that's where we first got acquainted. And um, and it's uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. I've got a couple of questions about all that. And then... Um, and we also want to talk about Frank's uh, book. He's written several books, but his latest book, uh, which is, has got the great title, is What to Do When Things Go Wrong. And it's, <laughs> it's a great read. Uh, it's available on Amazon, and, and other, Frank will tell us where else it's available. But Frank, welcome to the podcast. And we'll start off by saying, how, how did, I, I heard a rumor that you actually – started out as a uh, usher at Radio City Music Hall, is that right? <laughs> Hello, Pat and Jake. Nice to, nice to be with you. Uh, yeah, it's not a rumor. It's true. Um, I started as an usher at Radio City Music Hall when I was 15 years old. Uh, working uh, after school and, and on weekends, I was still in high school at the time, and, and stayed an usher and then an usher captain uh, when I went through college as well. So uh, really stuck it out at Radio City for 16 years all of, all together, but as an usher uh, for about six of those. But you know what, Pat? That's not even the most bizarre job I had there. The, <laughs> the most bizarre job I had there was I was a seat checker. And, and what that meant was so Radio City had 6,000 seats. It still does. Um, and somebody has to inspect them. Uh, so every night somebody goes through the theater and uh, reports on the condition of every single chair, the springs, the hinges, the armrests, the backs, everything, the padding. Um, and it takes about a month and a half <laughs> to get through the whole thing. And then you start all over again. So I, I did that. I did that from about 11 o'clock at night after my, my shift as an usher captain ended and uh, and finished up about three four o'clock in the morning. Frank, did you have it's, to did you have to squat and sit down in every chair? I no, I didn't that's have a to leg workout. Yeah, no, it was it was a great workout. Yes, I had to sit on in, <laughs> on every chair, and and in those days, there you know we didn't have uh, iPads or anything like that, so 
I had a spreadsheet and I had to mark down every chair that I checked. Uh, and if it was, you know, a hundred percent great, then, you know, just put okay. But if not, I'd, I'd fill out, uh, you know, what was wrong with the chair. And then I would leave the report in the upholsterer's mailbox for the next morning. And he worked during the mornings to get the seats repaired. And I worked at night inspecting them. It's fantastic. Yeah. Hey, so Frank, when, so when did the, I guess, when did the, I'm not saying the bug bite you, but when did you, I'm not sure what you thought you wanted to do when you started your part-time job and you were going to school. What, what were you thinking that you might want to do? <laughs> well, I, I have a degree in biology. Um, so I, I'm not exactly the, the, the person who took the, the most direct career path. Um, you know, what was, what was really fortuitous for, for me and I'm, and Pat, maybe for you too, is there weren't a whole lot of sports management programs back in those days. And, and because of that, um, you know, they were importing talent from anywhere and everywhere, every kind of job. I, I actually decided after I, I got my degree, I was, I was offered a management job at Radio City, and I thought it would be fun to do that for a year before I went back to school for my graduate degree. Um, and I was having so much fun, I stuck with it. You know, I just enjoyed the entertainment uh, side of, of the business and, and uh, got into, a, into venue operations, you know, facility operations, and from there into marketing and, and ultimately into event management. Um, and then when I left Radio City uh, 16 years after I got there, um, there was this great job that was available at the National Hockey League. Um, they needed an executive to uh, really start their event department. They didn't have one. Um, this is back in 1991-92 season. Um, they had a, a couple of meeting planners. They had people who worked in, in what they called the all-star office because that they managed the all-star game. But everything else was kind of spread throughout the league, and they wanted to centralize it and hire an event person. So that, that ended up being me. Wow. Yeah. And so it, let's, let's fast forward a little bit because it's, it's just fascinating. And I'm going to let people know something that they need to, to, to click on at some point to see more about Frank, but talk about the Super Bowl and, you know, I mean, the biggest event in the world and it's a, you know, it has become a, uh, it's a cultural, it's a cultural phenomenon. Um, there's, there's all different. Uh, I mean, it's the, the focus of the sports world and the world is really on this. And so how many, how many Super Bowls did you actually do? Uh, I managed nine Super Bowls uh, between oh my God. Uh, 2006 and 2014. Um, I, I was associated with a handful of others. So when, when I was at Radio City um, in the event department, we managed and produced events for other people. Um, it wasn't just about Radio City. It was, corporate clients and sports clients. And really that's where my first Super Bowl experience was because Radio City was hired to produce the Super Bowl halftime in 1988 for Super Bowl. Are you ready? Super Bowl 22. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. What are we up wow. to now? Um, I think we're coming up on, on 53 I th or 54. I, I th yeah. I think they're running out, running out of Roman numerals. Yeah, I, mean. yeah, I guess they are. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it was XXII back in those days. It was, it was Super Bowl twenty two. Um, so I, I, of course, you know, enjoyed my experience there. And Super Bowl was big in nineteen eighty eight. It wasn't 
as gargantuan as it became and, and, you know, it grows every year. So I'm sure it's bigger now than it was even in 2014 when I did my last one. It's, it was amazing. And I we really talk about the, uh, I really want to talk about the Super Bowl in New Orleans. And, and it, it, those of you who are listening, if you get a chance, take a, take a look on, um, on YouTube and click on the Super Bowl on 60 Minutes. Uh, it's on, and, it, and what it was was a segment on 60 Minutes that was with Frank at the Super Bowl. And it, it was really one of the things he mentioned in his, in his book. But they had a power failure. Yeah, Super Bowl. Yeah, we did. So, and and Frank was caught live dealing with it. T- t- tell me what that was like. <laughs> well, it wasn't live. It was it was being recorded for the sixty minutes piece, which was on on Showtime uh, that Wednesday, um, and and hit the CBS Morning News the next day. But uh, you know the cameras weren't weren't broadcasting live. Thank God. Thank God they weren't. Um, you know, we uh, Armin Katayan, who was the uh, who was the correspondent for sixty minutes, uh, was was standing beside me. He was doing a really did a month long piece on pre- uh, preparations and the people behind uh, making the Super Bowl run, and so they followed me around for a bit. Um, you know, from I guess December um, through game day, and. Uh, they were up in our control room. We called it NFL control. Uh, at the moment that the lights went out, Armin was um, asking me questions about the halftime show that had just ended, uh, which was Beyonce's halftime. And uh, and while I was looking at him and telling him a few things about what we were doing or had done, uh, the lights went out and I saw the look on his face before I saw the lights go out. <laughs> Um, you know, there's just this look of horror and, and he, he said, uh oh, and I, I was like, gee, I wonder what that meant <laughs> and turned around and said, uh oh, we lost lights. And, and, you know, from that point forward, I, I'm really actually grateful that that footage and that report existed because I would really have a very hazy recollection of what was going on because we were, we just started to focus immediately on what we had to do we we forgot about armin we forgot about the television cameras you know we we got down to business and started to to try to figure out what we had to do next i mean it was unbelievable and you know you're sort of in the moment you have to keep your cool you know and the other one of the other times i I saw frank was in the super bowl that was held it was the new york new jersey super bowl that was held in new york in the wintertime in February. And Frank, I, I got to tell you, there was a, there was a moment where I saw you in one of the hotels uh, the day before the Super Bowl, and you had your Super Bowl host committee parka and NFL, you know, it was, it, it was on there. And I, I looked at you and I said, God, that's Frank. What, what's he <laughs> doing here? And, and I said, no, I said, Frank, how you doing? And he, he said, well, let me answer it this way. He said, I'm like the guy who just got strapped into the electric chair, you know, and the yeah. worker who's strapping him in. And the guy, the guy looks at you and you say, and the guy says, well, how are you doing? And he says, well, okay, so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of how those things work. You know, you never go into these things a hundred percent comfortable. You shouldn't. Um, oh no, you, you shouldn't. Right. Um, you know, Super Bowl is, is just this gigantic 
project filled with details and and something somewhere is just going to slip away from you and and is not going to go well and you just never know where it's going to pop up um it, it it's and there's going to be more than one thing you know if there's tens of thousands of details there's going to be hundreds of things that go wrong hopefully they're all minor um sometimes they're a little bit more than minor and and hopefully it's not something that's all that noticeable in new orleans of course it was you know noticeable to about 115 million people at the same time it was to me um <laughs> but but um you know new york new jersey was a really interesting uh experience because we spent a couple of years dealing with all the ramifications and all the planning for you know what you do in a in a winter environment where the stadium is exposed and uh you know, we had done Super Bowls in Detroit and Indianapolis and other places where it snows, um, but we had never done one and, and still has never been replicated. One where you're in a winter uh, environment and the stadium is exposed. You have no roof. Um, so we we were thinking about that right from the get go. And, and, you know, two years ahead of time, we're trying to figure out how you're going to move a halftime stage across the field that could be frozen or covered in ice with hundreds of people moving tons of staging and somebody, you know, God forbid slips and, and falls or slips beneath the wheels. You, you have to have a plan to not put yourself in that position. Right. Um, you know, so we designed the halftime show so that you wouldn't have to move all of those things out. And, and we had to spend a lot of time thinking about how we were going to accomplish that. Um, and we ultimately did, um, you know, snow removal plans. We've had those too, but, but in this case, you know, do you, do you know how, how you pull snow out of a stadium? It's the most, no. it's the most counterintuitive <laughs> process it, anywhere. Every row of a stadium has to be hand shoveled. So you need about 700 people between 400 and 700 people. We had 700. Um, and they're literally shoveling row by row, seat by seat, and they dump the snow into chutes in the aisles. And the chutes take the snow where? To the field. To the field. Yes. The, the <laughs> last place you want it to go. But that's the only place it can go because it's the only place where you can gather it, you know, put it up in trucks and then drive it out of the stadium. So, you know, a, a six inch snowfall, you could have, you know, five, six feet of snow <laughs> on the field that you have to get rid of. So, you know, it's 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 counterintuitive, but it's necessary. And so we had to think about, all right, well, what if it snows, you know, at the worst possible moment? How how late can we have kickoff? Um do we do it on Monday instead of two instead of Sunday, like Monday night football? That would have been interesting. Um, oh. You know, if you're if you're going to have a snowfall, a major snowfall, a blizzard on Sunday, do you play the game Saturday? If you know in advance that you're going to get a blizzard on Sunday, when do you have to make those decisions? How do you reschedule the eighteen thousand people who are working on Super Bowl Sunday? And how how quickly can you get to everybody? And how quickly can you make sure? that all those people that you did expect to have there on Super Bowl Sunday, that they could change their plans. And if not, 
who can't change their plans and what job did they have and can you do without that job? So there were there were an enormous number of um, possibilities in how that game was going to come down if we got hit at the worst possible moment. And I don't know if you remember this, Pat. You probably do because you flew in from San Francisco. It was 12 degrees on Wednesday when we opened Super Bowl Boulevard on Broadway. 12 degrees Fahrenheit. On game day, it was 49 degrees at kickoff. Wow. Right? (laughs) I do remember. And And at 2 o'clock in the morning, it started to snow and we got 8 inches of snow and it closed the airports the following day. Oh, it total! You totally dodged, dodged the I guess the proverbial bullet. But it, talk about Super Bowl Boulevard. If you think moving snow out of a out of a stadium is crazy, how about closing down fourteen blocks of Broadway <laughs> uh, for I don't know seven or eight days, whatever it was? I mean, wh- tell me about that. That was a really interesting um, sales job. So we, we ended up, we had this big, you're, you're an event, but you're in sales. Well, you have to be, you you have to sell your idea and you have to sell the people who you're working for and with that you've got a plan that is going to work. Um, and, and then like Pat said in the, in the electric chair, yeah, so far so good. Um, (laughs) you know, we, we had always had a fan festival. It's called an NFL experience. It's a, it's huge. It's usually in a convention center. Um, there was really no place to put that in New York. So we, we had this crazy idea to do the fan festival outside in the winter, since the game is in the winter, the players are out there The you know, the players are tough. They play in the winter. New Yorkers are tough. They do everything in the winter. They're outside. Can we can we play off that and get people uh, to come and see this fan festival, which now that it's open and on Broadway, it you can't sell a ticket to it. Right. So you have to have a way of actually paying for it. Um, you know, the first place I had to go to sell it was was the National Football League. They weren't 100 percent sure that it was a good idea. Um, the next thing we had to do was sell the city of New York on the idea um, because, you know, Broadway at the time was not a pedestrian mall. It is now. Um, I knew that the mayor at the time had a plan to make it a pedestrian mall. I kind of saw this as a test case for them. Then we had to sell the police, you know, the NYPD. They're worried about crime and you know, potential terrorism and all kinds of other stuff. Um, I don't know if I'd be able to get that done today. You know, back then we were able to get that done. Back then was not that long ago. Um, but, no, you... but we were able to get that sold in. You know, one of the, one of the tricks to that was, Pat and Jake, um, we didn't sell merchandise or food and beverage on Broadway at Super Bowl Boulevard. I I had said, gee, why are we building structures to do that when you're in the middle of Manhattan? There's a billion places you can go for food. There's a great number of places where you would also go to stay warm. There's retail everywhere. Macy's is at the south end of it. Why don't we go to Macy's and, and see if they think this is a good idea and put the Super Bowl store in Macy's? Um, and and let them be the Super Bowl store, and they bought it right away. They they saw the the value, 
And when we sold it into uh, the local community boards and Senate, uh, state senators and congressmen or whatever, they, they saw this as a great opportunity for economic impact because we weren't competing with anybody. And, and so we got, we, I think we got the permission from the city before we got the permission from the NFL. And uh, it turned out that we'd had a, a million and a half people visit it in the, in the course of the four days that it was open. Well, well, it's one of the it's one of the tricks in the in the event business that I'll say is that, you know, you could probably if you were going to do that and you wanted to make sure that you could control everything, you know, you, you, you'd go do it out in a cornfield somewhere or you would do it right in the middle of the busiest part of New York. And so um, you have. A yeah, we sure did. Um, you, you know, we, we also had this <laughs> crazy um, two block long toboggan ride. Deer, yeah, which was just <laughs> tremendous. Right. and it 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 ran uh just on the south end of times square and that was the picture that went out to everybody you know those those were the photos you saw in the newspaper uh and on the internet yeah wow yeah. hey so so frank let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about and talk about the book and sort of what you're you know, it, look, everybody who's in this business, you, you know, you find you, there's lots of ways that you can lose sleep um, and, and we all do. But um, but writing a book called What to Do When Things Go Wrong. Talk a little bit about why you did it. What you know, uh, it, I've had the opportunity to read it, which I hope uh, the listeners will, too. But talk a little bit about well, the book. You know, you do this long enough. Um, you've seen a lot of things happen to you. You've experienced a lot. Um, what was starting to become really apparent to me, um, and it was well before even the Super Bowl in New York and New Jersey, was that there were patterns to these things. There were certain truths, if you will, mega truths, if you will, that, that you know, we addressed on the Super Bowl staff, and you, you were in some of those meetings with, with these Super Bowl mantras, right? Every year we had a what do we have to watch out for kind of saying, um, you know, assume nothing, double check everything, communicate or die, surprises suck, you know, all of those. And, and I said, you know, there's a, there's a process by which we, uh, by which we can plan better to avoid a lot of the things that, that, uh, that can go south on us. And, and when the the lights went out uh, at the Super Bowl in New Orleans, um, it really wasn't even about the planning. It was really about the response and how it was managed that that people had talked to me about and, and had observed. And I said, gee, you know, it would be funny if we could like take all of the stories of all of the screw ups. Um, that happened at the various events I've worked on it for the last 30 years. <clears throat> and then also, you know, look at some real plain life things that are, that went wrong out there that, you know, people can relate to and they've heard of and they've, they read the newspaper on it. How could those things have either been um, planned for better or they could have been responded to better. And, and as I started to go through the process, one of the things that was really interesting to me was that that all of us are such great planners. You know, people who are in the sports business, people who are 
project managers, people who are in the events business, we all know how to create a plan. We have a certain number of resources. We know where we're starting and we know where we want to end up. Where we go, where we go wrong and when things go wrong for us, it's because we didn't imagine the possibility of a failure somewhere along the way. So planning is not the first thing you do. The first thing you do is imagine how things are going to affect what you're working on. And you use that to inform your planning. So going from point A to point to point B, you might have to take a few twists and turns, or you may have to be prepared to respond to a few things that could happen um, even before you get started. And, and so, you know, I, I wanted to share a lot of that because some of these things are just funny stories, right? When something bad happens, you turn, you, you can look back on it and laugh about it and say, okay, well, I could have handled that better, but, but, you know, let's move on. The, the story that, that, that I tell um, about imagining is, is the Stanley cup story where we were going to bring the Stanley cup out. This was a hockey story, obviously. And we were going to bring the Stanley Cup out at the Montreal Forum. And we were going to give it to uh, these great Montreal, uh, Montreal Canadiens alumni to skate around the ice with the, with the cup above their heads. The cup wasn't in the building five minutes before it was supposed to, we were supposed to go to air. And nobody could find it. And, and so, you know we're ready to kind of go past it. I mean, it's too bad because we really promoted it and people were ready for it and, and the stars were ready for it. The, the fact is that the cup was at a luncheon for my boss. It was, it was at a sponsor luncheon and, and he had assured me that it was going to be at the forum in plenty of time. It had not made it to the forum. There was an ice storm outside, you know, back to another winter story and and it was stuck in a cab. The guy who who looked after the cup knew that it knew what time it needed to be at the forum. <clears throat> so he got out of the cab with the Stanley Cup in a road box <laughs> and was literally pushing it block after block across the ice that was crusted onto the streets. And it was it was minus oh 25 God. outside. It was frigid cold. And and it ultimately did get to the forum about a minute before we were supposed to have this moment. And when I heard that it was in the building, I said, great, get it out of the road box, put it into the player's hands and let him skate on the ice. The, the players skated out onto the ice. Okay. But because the cup had been out in the minus 25 degree temperatures and it's made of sterling silver, it was too cold to handle. So the players literally skated out onto the ice and dropped it right onto the, right onto the playing surface. And it just, and it bounced and made a sound like the Liberty bell. And yes, it was damaged and on national television. And I, and I was, I was mortified, you know, there's one Stanley cup (laughs) and we, and we damaged it. Um, And I, you know, the first thing I thought of was, gee, it was an awful nice career uh, at the National Hockey League. But, but the second thing was, um, you know, after it was all over and, and we could collect ourselves, because it was really miserable. Um, and, 
and French language Canadian television showed it over and over in slow motion just to, you know, rub it in a little bit. How could we have done that better? If, if I had imagined that, that the cup could be late, what would I have done? I might have had that moment later in the game. I might have staged a ceremony to get it out of the, of the brunch early. You know, I, I might have engineered the, the plan A better. It, wasn't, it wouldn't have been a contingency plan. It would have been a better plan. So plan A was just a faulty plan. And, and so that's, that's, you know, that's why it's so important, uh, or I felt it was important to write the book, was to, was to just lay it all out there and all the things I had done wrong over the course of the years and somehow kept my job. As you, Frank, none of these things were fa- there's no no fatalities oh, thank God. frank i mean there was yeah. none uh, got close got frank, close so but, with yeah not even close yeah, yeah kind of close so 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 now with fast traffic and you know you're moving on to the next so frank i gotta tell you you've done the biggest events in the world what's an event that you haven't done yet that you sort of would like to that you that you're intrigued about oh and you'd gosh like to do? i don't know you know that's a good question i i I don't really aspire to do an event that exists today um, that someone else is doing. I'm going to let other people do those things. I, I like doing something new and different that hasn't been done. Um, I like working on events that, that come to, uh, you know, come to fast traffic and, and want to explore new ways of doing even the same thing. Um, I've been producing the Indy 500 uh, pre-race show for the last few years and I was brought on originally to um, reimagine what the hundredth running uh, was going to be. That was in 2016. Uh, I'm about I'm, I'm now in pre-production for the hundred and fourth. And and the 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 thing that was really remarkable to me is the amount of history and tradition at the Indy 500. And there was so much you could do to restage and reimagine and repackage all of that. Um, and, and we did, you know, we, we took uh, a, a, a property that was really steeped in, in a, a racing culture that was all about the past and tradition and Memorial day. Cause it's on Memorial day weekend. And, um, and it's in a, it's in a package, Pat, that is, it's enormous. It's a two and a half mile oval and there's over 300,000 people who come to that venue on race day. And we wanted to do something where everybody felt like they got a part of that. Um, And, and so we spread the staging out a bit. We spread the activity out a bit. It used to all happen on the front stretch, right at the start and finish line. Now we've done some things that, 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 really give you a sense of the scale and the magnitude of the venue. Um, and I think we've succeeded in that. Um, Major League Soccer uh, hadn't done a skills competition for their all-star game in, in 20 years. Uh, I worked with them this past summer to do it um, in Orlando at uh, ESPN Wide World of Sports. And we had a blast. <laughs> We had a blast just, you know, re- re-engineering and reinventing what a skills competition for MLS is. 
those that's what that's what excites me is doing you know take taking the things that are already out there and just reimagining them frank as as you've gone through you know many many different events as you were explaining um what was maybe one of the sports that surprised you the most in terms of the entertainment or the amount that actually goes into it versus a Super Bowl? Uh, what was what was maybe one of the sports that surprised you? Um, I, you know, none of them surprised me um, per se, Jake. I think what um, what was really uh, interesting to me and what continues to be interesting is how business meetings. Um, at both the NHL and the NFL have be, have become uh, entertainment too. Um, the draft, as an example, um, the NHL's draft is actually a much larger scale event than the NFL's. The NFL's is much bigger because of the television and and the war rooms in thirty uh, in thirty two markets. And now you know, this big, huge festival that they do in various cities around, uh, around the country. Um, but, but at the end of the day, the draft is a business meeting. It's teams deciding who's going to be playing for them and who's going to have the rights to negotiate with that player. Um, the combine, another, you know, another, it's a workout. It's a testing event. Um, and that's become... Uh, uh, that's become a, a, a fan-friendly event. You know, Media Day uh, at the Super Bowl. Media Day, the, the Media Day was always at the stadium, and it was on Tuesday morning, and you inter- the, the media interviewed one team, and then they interviewed the other team. Tuesday at 9 a.m., you're done by 11.30, everybody goes home. In Indianapolis in 2012, we said, why don't we – put it on the floor of the stadium, but sell tickets <laughs> to media day. Um, what a, what a and concept. Then let, and then let people um, who are really avid fans come in. We gave everybody a, a little radio and they could dial into the podium of their choice. So they could hear the interviews that they wanted to hear from the player or coach that most interested them. And, and then we added a little bit of entertainment value. Now they do that on. And by the way, we put 7,000 tickets on sale for a Tuesday morning at, at nine o'clock, 7,000 people were there. Now they do it on Monday night and it's a huge stadium, like, like production. So, you know, it's, it's, that's what really surprises me now is, is how engaged fans are not just in the competitive elements of the competitions, the games, but also in in the behind the scenes of what's happening, it's kind of, you know, I guess it's like your podcast in in that respect that people want that peek behind the curtain. Um, they want that. They want to look through that crack in the in the front office door and see what's going on. And I think that's that's what's really remarkable to me. Absolutely. Well, in the in the technology technology that's available now is helping us, you know, sort of sort of address that I guess that insatiable uh, curiosity and interest, so we can continue to you know to bring it closer. And uh, um, it's a um, uh, you know it's it's a phenomenon that continues. I mean, you wonder what what is what's it all going to be like five years from oh, now I, or ten years I from now? I think it's exciting. <laughs> what's going to happen? 
in a few years as you know ar becomes more accessible um and as vr becomes more accessible as you need less hardware to make those things happen um you know where you're able Mm -hmm. to take and stream information and data uh into glasses you wear on your nose um just like the glasses that that i have to use to read um you know, and, and all that's going to come at you and you're going to be able to control what it is you want to see and what you don't. Um, and you can do that. I think where that's going to become really interesting is when you can do it on a, on a personalized level, but still be with people that you're interacting with and watching the game on the ice or the game on the field or the game on the court. Um, just the the ability for you to customize your experience even in a mass entertainment venue i i think it's going to be really exciting frank in in terms of you know the the skill sets that it took to uh, put on these events and and the team that you managed and uh you know you mentioned 700 people shoveling snow well someone's got to oversee that process what are for those who are are either in the industry thinking about running events or they are currently running events. I know we had Sarah, Sarah Graufon from the giants talking about events and different things that they were doing. Um, what are some of the skill sets that you were focused on throughout your career to uh, be more prepared for what went wrong? I, well, there's, a, there's a bunch of things. I, I think when, when I draft a team, um, it, I I like to have a job description for everybody, but I also don't want them to be limited by their job description. I I think it's really important that everybody understands what the ultimate organic goal is um, that, you know, what the expectations are, what our expectations are. um, And then to empower people to be able to help us deliver that. Um, It's amazing to me how much great information, how much great insight, and how many great ideas come from ushers. <laughs> I mean, literally, ushers. Um, and because they're your front line, they know what's going on out there. So, so um, you know, having people feel that they, they shouldn't be information hogs or that it's, they shouldn't feel that it's not their job to make make you aware of things that could go wrong, may go wrong or better ways of doing things. I think if you can empower people to feel that way um, and then even to handle some of those things within, within limits, of course, um, you know, and, and clearly lay out what those expectations and opportunities are, you know, they'll feel more fulfilled. We'll do a better job. We'll have a better outcome. I think that's, you know, that's key. Um, in term, and then on the other side, in terms of the people who are coming up into the industry, you know, it's, it's never not your job. It's never not my job. Something's got to happen. It's got to, it's got to happen. And if, if we need to reach out and get help from people who have to get out of their comfort zones to get it done, then that's what we have to do. So, I would say nothing's beneath you and nothing's not your job. I think that's, that's hugely important. Well, that's fantastic. And, and I know we've talked about that a little bit on the podcast before in terms of, you know, doing the things out of the ordinary that uh, maybe don't seem like a task that, you know, needs to be done right away, but it, it is super helpful. 
what's you know if you think back to your we we go back to the start of the episode when you talked about being an usher. Um, what was maybe one of those things that you did early on in your career that you still had to do later on in your career? <laughs> There's everything. Um, I, you know, I, it, early in my career, um, I learned a lot about customer service and I learned about, um, you know, how important cu- the experience was. Even then, we didn't talk about experience. We didn't use those kinds of words in that language to describe it. But, you know, when you got to Radio City and you handed somebody your ticket, um, it wasn't the Rockettes that tore your ticket and welcomed you to the building. Um, it wasn't the orchestra that helped you find your seat. Um, it, wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't a doorman that uh, it was always, I'm sorry, it always was a doorman. It was always an usher who helped you find your seat and, and delivering that experience um, in, in a world-class way where, where you can, you appreciate what the customer is doing for you and for your company um, and for your brand, your organization, I think was, was, you know, critical. So I, I think of that um, even today, if I'm, if I'm walking through Indianapolis Motor Speedway or, you know, Disney Wide World of Sports, ESPN Wide World of Sports, somebody stops and asks me where the restroom is. I, it's my job to tell them where the restroom is, <laughs> you know, um, you know, mm-hmm. nobody, nobody can tell who is a volunteer, who's the producer, who's the production team or who the front of house staff is. It doesn't matter. To them, you're all the same. And so delivering that experience, whether you're, whether you're an usher, you're a part of the product, you're, you're, even if you're a player, you know, you have to appreciate the customer and, and you're the reason they're the, they're the reason you're there. Um, I, I don't think that's something that changes regardless of what your job description is. Well, you, you bring up a great point. I got, I got one last question, then Pat will kind of wrap up the episode. But, you know, it, it, as you alluded to, there's there small things. It's the service a- aspect of, of the entertainment and the experience. But there's a ton of ushers. There's a ton of front of house staff people. How do you motivate and engage and get everyone to be on the same team uh, for, you know, if they're working the Super Bowl, maybe they're only there for one day or two days. And then they're gone. Absolutely. You know, that was a really important thing that, that we started to understand we needed to deliver. Um, and, and that came, I would say, halfway through my career at the NFL, maybe a little later than that, um, was that you do have to get everybody on the same page. A, a, a security guard who is, look, who is watching a, a gate out in the parking lot is not having a great time at the Super Bowl. I understand that. They are essential to the delivery of a safe environment. I think everybody needs to understand, regardless of what their job is, as small as, and, and perhaps seemingly insignificant as they may feel it is, all contributes to the end product, which is the experience. Safety, the cleanliness, um, uh, of the of the environment, you know, that's all something that delivers a premium experience. We don't have that. That person doesn't do their job. It's not a premium experience. So we as managers, 
um, have to have to let them know how much we appreciate their contribution. And we want them to feel like they're part of the action on the field and the memories that are going to be created by somebody's visit to the Super Bowl. That was something that we started to pay a great deal of attention to, to in, with respect to everybody who put on a Super Bowl credential. So now you've heard from the guy who literally wrote the book on managing and marketing live events, our friend Frank Sapovitz. And Frank, you know, I didn't mention, I should have, is that you're also uh, were inducted into the Event Industry Hall of Fame, which is a which is a, is a terrific honor. But I think just from listening to you, you know, you get an idea. Anybody who listens can get an idea of what it takes to put on one of these big shows. It is, you know, sort of behind the facade. What goes on? How does it happen? And, you know, you have to have a, uh, you have to have a, a feeling that you're telling a story, you're delivering a value, and you're really putting on a show. And so, Frank, I, I really want to thank you on behalf of Jake and and the listeners. I want to thank you for uh, being being on our podcast. And I'll just remind people that when you, uh, if you want to read more about this. Uh, Frank has written several books, but the one that's the most, the, the, late, the latest book is What to Do When Things Go Wrong, and you can get it on uh, Amazon, as I did, and um, Frank, I, I, I just can't wait to see what's, you know, what kinds of stuff oh, you're going to be doing you, next. Thank, thank and, you, guys. Uh, it was really incredible to be with you today. Um, I really enjoyed it, and, and I hope your listeners did, too. I want to take the time to thank you for listening to Life in the Front Office. And if you liked our episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We greatly appreciate it. And for more episodes, visit us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website at lifeinthefrontoffice.com. And please continue to share uh, with your colleagues on social media and help us continue to grow. Thanks.